Well, it's been a few weeks, but as we get back to Genesis chapter 13, we, we come to a point in which there is a real contrast between Abram's behavior in chapter 12 and his behavior in chapter 13. In chapter 12, we saw at the end of chapter 12, we saw Abraham's lack of faith. We saw the expression of the flesh, his debacle in Egypt when he lied about his wife and was completely self-centered in, in, in his attitude and did not consider God in his decisions. It was really a display of the flesh at its best or at its worst, we might prefer to say. And it's really typical of all of us. That's what the flesh is like. Flesh is self-centered and does whatever it takes to, to take care of ourselves, to satisfy ourselves, or to preserve ourselves. In chapter 13, we come to a, quite a contrast. And the first thing we see as we read through this passage this morning is that when Abraham went up from Egypt, now Egypt, remember, is a picture of the world and how the world lives and how the world uh, sees life. And he finally went up from there, and that's a good, good point. But it does mention to us that he, he and his wife left with all they had, and, and they were rich. And we, it reminds us of what we saw in chapter 12, that in spite of Abraham's bad behavior, carnal behavior, fleshly behavior, God had blessed him anyway. And that's the nature of grace. Grace is God giving to man undeservedly. And Abraham left there richer than when he came, even though he didn't walk with God during those times. God still blessed him. And he was rich, it says in verse 2, with livestock and silver and in gold. And for you and I, it pictures the riches we have in Christ. And it's not that God wants to make any of us rich. The prosperity gospel that says that God wants to make us all physically rich is just not the gospel. But God does want to make us spiritually rich. That's the gospel. We have been blessed with, a, with eternal salvation for all who trust Christ by faith. And in Christ, we're told in Ephesians 1, 3, that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. God has blessed us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. See, God gives to his children, though we are so unworthy. And that's the nature of grace. God gives because he chooses to give to his children. And as we move past that first introduction to this chapter, we find the journey of Abraham. And in this journey, what we see is this change of attitude, this change of perspective in, Ab in Abram. And it's, it's a complete difference from, from the end of chapter 12 as we get to chapter 13. And you might say that Abram had a change of heart, as we might put it today, or if you prefer to call it, an attitude of repentance. In in this change. And what we see really here, and we're going to look at these, if we get that far this morning in a moment, is the fruits of repentance. We see little indicators in this simple passage. The first thing we see is that he went south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. And Bethel means the house of God, and it represents that Abraham had gotten right with his God and went back really to the presence of God. He went back to Bethel, the place he had been at, at the beginning. And that's what repentance is all about for the believer. It's about, it's about confession of sins. It's about making our hearts right with God. It's about returning to the place of fellowship with God and, and, a, and a walk with him. The next thing we see is that he, he had gone back to Bethel, the place he had been at the beginning, at the beginning. And there's some notes in Scripture we're going to look at that talk about going back to the beginning, where Abraham enjoyed God's presence and God's leading and, and God's promise. It's where he built an altar and worshipped. It's where he simply just enjoyed the Lord and trusted the Lord each step of the way. 
going back to the beginning. The third thing we see is that he once again called upon the name of the Lord. It tells us here. We saw that in the last chapter. And, and we believe that represents the idea of identifying with Jehovah as his God and Abraham as his people. And that's what we do today. We are his people. We bear his name, don't we, as Christians. And so it's that identity that Abraham once again began to live. The fourth thing we see here as an indicator, indicator of a right life, or if you prefer to call it the fruit of repentance, is a desire to rightly resolve conflict. There was conflict that had happened, and that's going to happen in life. Things are going to come up that are unbiblical or, or, or sin in our lives, and Abraham took a biblical approach, a right approach, a godly approach to resolving conflict. And the fifth thing we see in this verses we read is an expression of preferential grace. Abraham let Lot choose first. He is an attitude of selflessness, just an opposite of the selfishness that we saw in chapter 12. And so these first few verses indicate a change, a life much different than, than his journey into Egypt, worlds apart, a change of attitude and his approach to life, and if we want, you can call it repentance. And before we look at these five things, I want to define repentance, first of all, because it is a much confused term today. And first of all, I just want to get it out there and say what it is not. So repentance in, in the Bible, the term repentance in the Bible, is not a turning away from or giving up of certain sins. That's a definition we've attributed to repentance, the idea of giving up sins and coming to Christ. And if you look up the word, feel free to do so in a Greek dictionary, the word means a change of mind. Now, some people like to take on the fact that change of mind, which leads to a change of direction, but in reality, it's a change of mind. That's what the word means. It simply means to change one's mind. Now, you might ask me, why am I being so nitpicky? Why is this important? It's because when you ask an unsafe person to give up something and come to Christ, you're asking them to work their way to heaven. You're asking them to do something to get to heaven. And that's not the Bible, mes Bible message for salvation. And we tend to confuse the what what we want to call the first tense or second tense salvation or first phase or second phase of our salvation, first we have to become a Christian. First God wants to save us and give us the Spirit of God so then we can have the power to begin to change. Yes, God wants to change our lives. We're still in the process of change and hopefully that's why we're sitting here this morning so God can be, continue to change us. But that change, the requirement to change was not a requirement to salvation. Salvation is not by works. We just studied that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's not about giving up certain things in order to come to Christ. It's not by works lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 2, 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in, G in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And Romans eleven six 6 makes it very clear when it talks about the approach to salvation. He says if it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise grace is no longer grace. But it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. In that verse, the Bible defines for us what God means by grace through faith and not by works. They are mutually exclusive approaches to salvation. It's either of grace or it's of works. It can't be of both. 
God makes it very clear, and I, we could go over verse after verse after verse, that we understand that we got to heaven not because heaven is a reward, it's, it's dead, it is a gift that is given. It is not a reward that is earned. It's a gift of God for those who put their faith in Christ. Is repentance a part of salvation? Oh, absolutely. A change of mind is an absolutely essential part of salvation. But we cannot allow our desire to see people change to take second tense salvation and incorporate it into first tense salvation to make sanctification part of the salvation process. They're distinctly different in the scriptures. God first deals with our birth and then he deals with our maturity. And that's the order you always see in the scripture. Now repentance may involve a change of mind about my sin and what I've been living for. It definitely has to do with a change of, of my idea about God and his plan of salvation. But God never asks us to change our lives to get saved. In fact, the only thing that God wants us to give up, and there's one thing he wants you to give up in order to get saved, and that's hell. That's what he gets, gives up. Because he that believes not is condemned already. And the Bible works very hard, and God makes it very clear, especially in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians, that salvation is by faith alone apart from works. And you say, well, why are you making this an issue? Because so many. And I hear messages on podcasts, on the radio, where the implication is that, you have, that when someone gives an invitation to salvation, it is give up, give up, give up your sins, certain behaviors. And sometimes they name certain behaviors. And God says, no, it's believe, believe, believe. And incorporated in the idea of believing is a change of mind about how you used to believe about God in heaven, about the plan of salvation, to a belief about God. And it can be difficult to, ch to shake that traditional view of repentance that's so ingrained into, into Christian terminology. But we need to go back to the Bible, lay hold of the right biblical definition and the right usage of the term to be ensured that we don't corrupt the, the gospel of grace, the plan of salvation, by incorporating works into it. Because salvation is a gift accomplished by Jesus Christ. He, God, is the one who saves. Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price. He is the one that rescues us freely. And it's offered by grace alone through faith alone. Paul put it this way in Acts 20, 21, testifying to Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if repentance meant giving up, repentance toward God does not mean giving up God. Repentance simply means a change of mind. Change of mind about God. Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6.1 says this, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And someone might say, well, isn't that talking about giving up our dead works? Well, Hebrews chapter 9, the same book, verse 4, uses the same term, where he says this, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to serve the, to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And in that context, the dead works are referred to the Mosaic Law, keeping the Ten Commandments, offering animal sacrifices. That's the whole context of chapter 9. The fact, the whole context of Hebrews is Christ's sacrifice was better than the Old Testament because the Orthodox Jews were having trouble letting go of the law and the Mosaic system and the sacrifices and all that went with it. And, and the writer of Hebrews points out the fact that Christ is better. How much more shall the blood of Christ? How much more effective was the blood of Christ? 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to cleanse our conscience. That's our guilt. From dead works to serve the living God. This is something the law could never do. And so repentance for the, for the unsaved is about a change of mind. About, about God, about salvation, maybe about their sin, about the way they live. It's not, a, it's not about changing our behavior in order to get saved. And we have to be careful with that. For the saved, it's about making things right, isn't it? 1 John 1, 9 tells us to confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And that's for the believer. That's, about, that's a relational verse. And built into confession is the idea of repentance. They're often dealt with this, uh, in parallel in the scriptures. To, to, to change one's mind is, is before God is, is to change your mind about what you've done. That's kind of what, like what we ask our kids when they've rebelled. We want them to see the error of their ways. And we might leave, give them a little influence moving them in that direction. And all we want them to say is that you were right. I was wrong. Well, built into that simple phrase is a repentance and a confession. A change of mind and a confession. And they go hand in hand in Scripture. In fact, Proverbs 28, 13 says, if we confess and forsake, we'll have mercy. You know, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, Jesus addresses seven churches, and five of, to five of them, um, he mentions the idea of repent. Repent. He wants them to change. In fact, let's look at Revelation chapter 3 for a moment, if you would, if you want to flip there with me. The last of these, uh, at the end of this passage, he tells them to repent, to have a change of mind, which God knows will result in a change of direction. But he says this, because when God wants us to repent as Christians, to confess, sometimes it's because of a sin we've committed, sometimes it's a conviction he brings to our lives through the teaching of God's word or the reading of God's word, and God convicts us of something that needs to be made right with him, because God simply wants us to walk with him with no hindrances between in our fellowship. Revelation chapter 3, interesting verse, some, some, somewhat misunderstood at times as well. But in verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Have that change of mind. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, dine with him, and he with me. Now this verse, often used as a salvation verse, is not a salvation verse in this context. It's a fellowship verse. Jesus got through speaking to seven churches, five of which were not in great shape, some worse than others. He tells them they need to repent, they need to have a change of heart, a change of mind. And he, and he summarizes it here. As many as I love, I'm rebuking, I'm chastening you in these seven churches, five says five especially. And he says, be zealous, repent, have a change of heart. And you do, and it's because I'm standing at your heart's door. This is not about salvation, this is about God wants to fellowship with us. That's why he disciplines. That's why he corrects us. That's why he chastens us. That's why he convicts us. And if we hear his voice, what voice? Well, verse 19 or the previous couple chapters. I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. God wants our fellowship. And so our fellowship is restored and our relationship is precious when we are willing to confess. But whatever that sin was, Whatever that conviction is, we can't change on our own. 
We can admit we are wrong. We can admit my life needs an adjustment. But we don't find the strength in ourselves to, to make that adjustment, do we? And so God isn't asking us to come up with the strength to do it. He just wants a change of heart, a change of mind. And that's why Ephesians 6, 10, 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That's why 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything are of our, as of ourselves, our sufficiencies of God. That's why Jesus says, Without me you can do nothing. We need his strength, but it starts with our hearts. With a change of heart, a change of mind, when we respond to the conviction that he brings. And apparently... Abram, somewhere, doesn't list this for us, but there's such a drastic change in behavior from the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13, whether he did it verbally or on his knees or just in his head or however it occurred, he had a change of heart. But he began to live God's way. And that becomes the fruit, the evidence of the change of heart, the change of life that occurred in Abraham. Acts 26.20 says this, this is what Paul says. He first declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Notice the order. Repent, have a change of mind. Turn to God. And the call that God is calling men to salvation with is the message of the gospel. And then, following that, as a result of, do works befitting repentance. And so as we go back to Genesis 13, and I hope I made that clear this morning. If you have any questions, feel free to approach me. Please, please. And we'll look at what the Bible says. Back to Genesis 13, we see these indicators of a right life, you might say. In the light of chapter 12, we call it the fruits of repentance, but the fruits of a life that is right to God. And... Abram first returns to a fellowship with God, going back to Bethel, the house of God in his day, was going back to a right relationship. That's the first thing we saw. The next thing we saw is Abraham went back to the beginning. And I think this is significant because we see it a couple places in scriptures, the idea as God challenges our relationship to him to go back to the beginning when the relationship was fresh, when it was vital, when it was alive. In fact, you were in Revelation. I should have had you stay there. I apologize, but let's go back to chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' address to the churches. And I want you to look at the church at Ephesus because in abbreviated form, this is what God tells the church at Ephesus. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. They were obviously a militant church. They had stood for the truth. You have persevered and have patience, and you have labored for my namesake. They were a serving church, and they have not become weary. Nevertheless, you're missing something. I have this against you, that you've left your first love. And that was the criticism of the church at Ephesus. They had forgotten about the love of Christ. They've abandoned that. They had walked away from that intimate relationship. They became a militant, maybe a legalistic church, but they had left their first love. Then he tells them in verse 15, remember from where you have fallen. Remember. You've left your love. Remember your first love. That's what he's telling them. Remember from where you've fallen. 
Repent, have a change of mind, and do the first works. Go back to the beginning. When you were so thankful, so had such a spirit of gratitude, rejoicing in a God who loved you so much that he saved you and began to mold and make you in your life. That's what he tells them here. Same thing Abraham did. He went back to the beginning. And that's what God tells the church at Ephesus. You need to go back. Back to when our relationship was fresh. I especially think you see this illustrated in the book of Jeremiah. So if you want to turn on your way back to Genesis, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2. And remember, this book was written at a time of increasing apostasy in Israel and in Judah. Not long before God disciplined them through, the, through captivity. And this is what he says to them. Chapter 2 of Jeremiah. Verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. No, we always like it when it's the Bible, don't we? When it's God speaking. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel is holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. You know, I don't know that words can describe better than this passage does, the love of God for his people. What an amazing thing. And this is just isn't, you know, some romantic fable. This is God's specific expression of his love for his people and their love in return. It's the kind of relationship God wants us all to enjoy. It's what Ephesus had forgotten, the first love. Notice what he goes on then to say as he begins to comment and make some observations, ask some questions. Verse 4 says, Hear the word of the Lord, the house of Jacob and the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. He's got another message for them. And he says, What injustice has your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me and have followed idols and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see. Send a Kidar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a tragic passage, isn't it? And God mentions to them in these first four verses of this chapter the intimacy of the relationship he had with his people, but they had forsaken it, the last verse we, we read. And he asks, first of all, in, in, in verse 5, he begins to ask how irrational this is. And he asks a question, what have I done? Is that what happens when two lovers quarrel or one leaves the other? What have I done? What have I done? Now, in God's case, we got nothing to say, doesn't it? 
that he's a perfectly holy God, ever faithful, keeps his promises, never lies. He said, what injustice have you found in me? What have I done? What made you, what drove you away? You've gone far from me. You follow idols. You live for other things. Irrational. In verse 6, he mentions the unthinkable. In verse 6 through 8. They, 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 they didn't say, where is the Lord? They didn't come to him in prayer. They didn't look to him for independence. Even though God had delivered them, who led them, who took care of them, who blessed them and brought them to a bountiful country. But when they came in, they defiled, they turned to idol worship, in other, other words. And the priests, the leaders, didn't say, where is the Lord? They didn't consider God in his word. They did the unthinkable. In verses 10 through 11, it was unbelievable. When he says, look and see. Has a nation, verse 11 says, has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? He says, you might understand it if it's a matter of wooden idols sitting on a mantle. But they change their gods. They, they often, and even they don't, they don't change their gods. They just add to them, by the way. That's what God's saying. But interesting here, he says, my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. In my Bible, glory is capitalized. It's a reference to God. It reminds us that the glory of our lives is, a, is, a, is our relationship with God. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And they had traded in a relationship with God for wooden idols, the things of this world. It was unbelievable. And then verses 12 and 13, he says, it's incredible. That's what you see in these passages. It's irrational, it's unthinkable, it's unbelievable. It's incredible that they've... That they've forsaken the fault in the living waters and instead gone after empty cisterns. Living for things that don't satisfy. That don't profit. You see, Abram went back to the beginning. And that's where God's calling his people here in Jeremiah. That's where he was calling the church at Ephesus. Back to the first love. Back to the intimacy of a relationship because Christianity is more than a dogma, more than legalistic practices. It's about a God who was faithful to his promise, promises, who, who is ever-present with us and wants to guide us through life. And no one understands like he does. God didn't intend this life to include death and sickness, the loss of loved ones, ice storms that put you out of business and make you lose power for three days. And God didn't intend for that. Why has he allowed the earth to go on like that? Because he's got a plan. Right now he's building his church. But in the meantime, he wants to see us through. He wants us to guide us through that, through the land of deserts and pits and drought and the shadow of death. He wants to hold our hands. He wants to be that loving father that never leaves us nor forsakes us, that strengthens us, upholds us, that give us the strength to face those terrible losses and challenges of life. And yet, as Christians, we're often like Israel, and we forsake it. And we live life independent. We don't spend time in his word, in prayer, with other Christians, where that life is lived. It was encouraging. One of the indicators, going back to Genesis 13, in Abram's life, is that he went back to the beginning. And when he went there, he began, number three, to begin calling on the name of the Lord. He get recognized who really was God in his life. You see, when Abraham went to Egypt, he had his own plan for survival. 
And once he got there, he had his own plan for surviving Egypt. And he didn't identify with God or look to God for wisdom and direction. He was running his own life, calling his own shots. And when you begin to call on the name of the Lord, it's a time when a person humbly takes their place and seeks God first in daily life. That's what we're to do. We're God. Christ is to have the preeminence. He is the preeminent one. He has a position of preeminent, and he ought to be preeminent in our lives because we are called by his name. That's our identity. We are Christians. You know, being a banker, a lawyer, or, or a chief is maybe our jobs or occupations. But our identity is that we're Christians. Christ lives in us. That's who we are. One of you sitting here's favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's our identity. And Abram went back to that. And we're to seek God first in our lives. And listen how the Bible puts that. It puts it in a variety of ways. Matthew 6.33 talks about seeking God first, doesn't it? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Mark 12.30 talks about loving him most. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Romans 12.1 talks about submitting to him wholly. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Submitting to him wholly. Matthew 10.38 talks about following him completely. Notice the absolutes in these verses. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Proverbs 3, 5 trust him, encourages us to trust him explicitly. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And Joshua 24, 15 talks about serving him continually. For Joshua says, and it seems, if, it, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. We're to serve him continually. You know, the implication throughout these passages is that this Christian life is a whole 20, wholehearted 24-7 thing. It is a complete surrender and enjoyment of seeking God first in our lives. These are all at different aspects of absolute dynamics that identify us as God's people. It's realities God wants to build into our lives. And so we must figure out what this means. What does it mean to seek God first, to love him wholly, to submit to him Submit to him and follow him completely, to trust him explicitly and to serve him continually. We've got to figure that out. This is what the Bible tells us to do. This is how God wants us to live. And in do, living God's life God's way, there's a whole lot of pain, a lot less pain and stress. And instead, there's strength and peace and courage to face the challenges ahead. Because we are not only to call on his name, we are called by his name, are we not? That's our identity. And Christians are being known by their fruit. And just like Abram, Abram became very recognizable in this chapter as a child of God, a person of God, as he began to express the ways of God. And so God would do in our lives. The next thing we see here, this indicator of a change of heart, is a desire to resolve conflict in verses 6 through 8. You know, they had so much cattle and there wasn't room for them and the herdsmen were fighting and, and Abram recognized the conflict it didn't, and he said it did not belong among brethren. That's kind of the key phrase he says, he mentions here, doesn't he? 
And the verse 8 says, for we are brethren. And that doesn't belong amongst the brethren, does it? It takes effort to maintain the unity of the spirit we saw when we studied Ephesians chapter 4. And that's what Abram's doing here. This took a confrontation direct to deal with a problem directly and find, a, and find a right and biblical resolution. And Abram approaches this not with a combative spirit, instead with a humble desire for God honoring peace, whatever it would take. And that's an indicator of a heart and a life that is right with God. And really represents for us a desire to live according to God's word. Because we're to wholly follow God's word as well, aren't we? It's a desire to live life God's way. And this was God's way. You know, most of us would, you know, would go down to a local cafe, and, you know, and, and curse out a lot. Mumble under their breath, why did I ever bring him with me? You know, he's my uncle's kid, why is he my problem? And whatever else. That's the flesh's way. And we'd find a way to tell him, you know, you just, this, you know, God led me here. He didn't lead you here. You just get lost. I don't want nothing to do with you anymore. But instead, Abram did it the Bible way. He wanted a peaceful resolution to conflict because they were brethren. It's a desire to live life according to God's word and God's will. And that's what we all need to do. If we're not living it, we need to return to the Bible as a guide in every area of life. The last thing we see here is preferential grace. The resolution here included a very unselfish attitude by Abram, didn't he? And, and later, as we'll get to this passage, we'll see that the options were, you know, the well-watered plain. Who wouldn't want to bring their flocks and herds to, to, to the well-watered plains? Rationale was Abraham was a senior. He had the first choice in the matter. And he could very logically said, well, if God wants to prosper me, I need to help him out, and I need to go where the grass is thick and green. And uh, so that's where I'm heading. But he didn't. And I kept help but wonder if Abram realized that God could fatten his cattle or sheep just as well on stubble as he could on green grass. That's what happened when he put God first. Isn't it? God doesn't need the best the world has to offer to take care of us, does he? And so Abraham trusted the Lord. This is a tremendous decision because Abraham, all the rights in the world to, to take that first. This is the land God had led him to. Instead, he makes a selfless decision and saying, you choose. You go that way, I'll go this way. We'll talk more about Lot next week. But this dynamic in, uh, expressed in, Abraham's, in Abram's life, very real. This is, this is, you know, nitty-gritty. This was a ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. This had cost me money decision, this doing it biblically. This dynamic, this, this life principle is splattered all over the pages of Scripture. We see that especially in the New Testament because the New Testament talks about the expression of the life of Christ, of Jesus within. And Jesus set that example for us of serving, of honoring, of considering, preferring, and submitting to others. You see those concepts and those principles throughout the New Testament, this biblical direction, which is really the reality of allowing Christ to live in us and through us. And what you're not going to see in this passage is a grumbling regret by Abram for that no-good-for-nothing nephew of mine taking a better land. 
Well, we don't know what he might have said, but it's not recorded for us at least. You know what? Because there's joy in doing things God's way. There's joy in letting Jesus direct our attitudes and our actions in life. You know, the book of Philippians is a book of joy, isn't it? It's, it's rejoice in the Lord. It's all over the page. It's a joyful book. But in the middle of that book, there's an entire chapter on, in chapter 2, on service. The beginning of the chapter tells us to, to honor others better than ourselves. Verse 5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It goes on to tell how he left the glories of heaven to die for you and I on the cross. And then it goes on in that chapter to talk about three individuals, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, who serve God sacrificially and wholeheartedly. It's a whole book, chapter on service. And service is something we normally view as drudgery and, and avoidable. It's a joy. That's why it's there. It's a joy. Remember, we used to play for our kids some tapes. These are Patch of Pirate tapes. And I remember one story. I don't remember which one it was. All I remember is this idea of some kid that was supposed to be his little prince. And he inherited all these possessions. And along the way, he gave his things away to help others. And by the time the story gets to the end, he says uh, he doesn't have a thing. He's given it all away. He went from rags to riches to rags. And he says, tells his little friend there, I still remember this part, he says, I'm happier than I've ever been. I don't understand it. I was so discouraged when I was in rags. Then I got riches and now I'm back in rags. He said, but I'm happier than I've ever been. Because there's joy. It's not a manufactured joy. Well, if I give this, God's going to give me joy. No, it's, it's the expression of the life of Christ when we allow him to live his sacrificial love through us. These are some of the indicators of a life that is right with God, of apparently a change of heart or repentance in the life of Abraham. Abraham went back to God's presence. He went back to the beginning of enjoying a living and vital and exciting relationship with a faithful God. And if you take time to get into God's Word, you're going to discover promises and principles and precepts that are just thrilling about the person of God. Living righteously, God's way, is exciting because the Bible works. Abraham went back to living his identity as, a, as one who belonged to, to Jehovah God. He went back to doing things God's way in resolving the conflict. And he went back to expressing real love, sacrificially, and preferring and honoring others before himself. Now this isn't an exhaustive list of the, the fruits of a right life, but they are indicators of a heart that is right with God Dynamics that God would develop in you and I if we simply allow Christ to rule in our life and seek him with a whole heart. And these are realities only God can produce. God doesn't ask us to crank these out in, 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 in the flesh. He reminds us for, that for, though for without me you can do nothing, Jesus says in John 15 and Philippians 4, he says, but you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's a reality God wants to make real in us. And it's because who's God in our lives? If self is on the throne, we're in Genesis chapter 12, the last half of it, running life our way, figuring it out on our terms. If we're led by the Spirit, if we're submissive to God, if we're seeking Him first, then it's the life of Christ that God would develop in us. And 1 John 2, 6 is this, a very wonderful verse. It says, He who says he abides in him, Abiding in Christ talks about our relationship, our love relationship, 
walking with him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And that's really what we see in Abram this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the realities that are in Christ. Father, not only do we have the assurance of eternal salvation, the promise of a glorious future, but Father, you promise us an abundant life. You have said in John 10 that you've come to not only to give life, but to give it more abundantly. And truly, there's an abundant life when we seek you first in our lives. Father, help us to be humble in our behavior so that if we are like Abraham or when we are like Abraham, that we are willing to have a change of heart, to respond to conviction, to allow you to change us, and that we might in turn look to you for the power and strength to live as we ought. So help make these things helpful to us this morning. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name.